welcome to yet another episode of the D program. As the winter is rearing its beautiful head, we thought we huh. might as well bring you a representative of the one city that looks arguably the best in winter time. I'm walking over here, <laughs> New York. We are privileged to have with us lawyer, comrade, owner of the arguably best-looking ginger mustache on the American East Coast, TikTok superstar, and now hopefully dear friend of the show. What's up, man? Welcome to the show. Please take a minute to introduce yourself and plug anything you want to the people who possibly somehow might not have engaged with your work before. And before you start, uh, like you're not billing us for this podcast by the hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah. Please, I wish. Um, <laughs> hi, thank you for those kind words. Uh, you know, I do my best with my uh, mustache routine to keep it in shape and everything like that. I'm Alex, I'm a public defender. Uh, some people may know me. On, Unfortunately, I am a, a lawyer who is on the internet, uh, which are some of the worst posters that exist. And I'm not above that, you know. I just want everyone to know, but I'm out here. I'm trying. You're doing great work. We appreciate it. You're, you're on the front lines posting through it. Yes, absolutely. I'm definitely constantly posting through it, much to the dismay of my friends <laughs> and loved ones. There, yeah, there's very often an interlude of uh, your partner, or I don't know who it is, of like, are you recording? What the fuck are you doing? Is it a TikTok again? It's very <laughs> funny. It's 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 peak peak content, but it's also extremely useful. So the dear listeners don't listen to his uh, his radical modesty. And obviously everything, uh, all of his social media and everywhere where you will be able to interact with his work, which out of which you can actually learn quite a lot, uh, you will be able to find in the description of the episode. Would you like to add anything else, my friend, or uh, we can move towards uh, the first question, which kind of goes into deep the program lore about uh, uh, our dear comrade JT being visited by uh, scary men in black suits. I mean, I want to hear about the black suits, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. All right, well, let's let's jump in then. So um, I, I went and dug up the the actual papers I got from my, my FOIA request. So I've got the details here. Um, what was the date? It was in September of 2020. I, uh, I was at home, and I got a knock on the door. And uh, this was after I had, had put out a video um, shortly before that about the CIA and, you know, the coups they've done and all the destabilizing uh, activity they do. Um, and I called it the CIA as a terrorist organization. Ouch. That seems fine. Yeah, you know, normal stuff. And, and this, none of this was classified information or something. This was all stuff you can find online or in books or, you know, that uh, heads of the CIA have, have said in, on, like, Fox News and stuff. So it's all out there for people to consume in one form or another. I just put it together. And that got age-restricted, which I was used to. It's happened before with some of my videos. I uh, got demonetized. But what I hadn't had happen before was it was completely hidden from search results for the first little bit because I got uh, reports of people saying, um, even if you search it by its exact title, which should always come up if you do that, regardless of how small the channel is or how few views the video has, 
If you searched it by its exact title, it still wouldn't come up in search results. People had to go to my channel, go to the videos page specifically, before they could see it. And then they had to click through like three, are you sure you want to watch this, warnings um, on that video. So that was kind of sus. And I went to Twitter and tweeted at YouTube and said, hey, this is not supposed to happen. And they gave me the, the bullshit response. of like, oh, yeah, that's, that seems to be a glitch. We'll look into it, stuff like that. Um, but, of course, it was quietly reinstated uh, a couple days later after some back and forth on Twitter, and that that uh, got a lot of attention, that thread. But anyway, that was I figured that was the end of that. But a few days later, I got a knock on the door. And I was like, all right, I'll just, you know, go answer the door. Um, I don't have a peephole. I, don't have, I didn't have a, a ring camera or anything. So I opened the door, and there are two dudes dressed, you know, in their, uh, like, business casual with a, uh, what do you call it, like a windbreaker on, uh, heads shaped roughly like thumbs, and <laughs> Hell I was yeah. like, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's exactly what you'd expect. And I was, I was like, hi, uh, can I help you guys? And they're like, well, we're with the uh, the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, do, we have a couple of questions for you. Do you have a second? I'm like, I don't think I need to talk to these people, but I'm not <laughs> yeah, <no>. sure. <laughs> yeah. So I was I was like, okay, I'm, let me let me just go grab a grab a mask real quick because you know peak COVID and all that. So I went in, grabbed a mask, and I was I was kind of like composing myself. It's like, all right, do I do I try to look it up real quick because I'm like I'm fairly certain I don't need to answer any questions. Or what do I do? I don't want them to like barge in here and shoot me if I take too long. So I grabbed a mask, went back out, and I figured I'd play dumb. So I went out there, and I'm sure you can tell me how all of this was the wrong decision. But I go out there, and they're like, uh, you're, you're J.T. Chapman? I was like, yes. Uh, this is where you live? Yes. Uh, how long have you lived here? Give them that. Uh, anyone else live here? Give them that. Are you a member of any uh, extremist groups, any uh, political <laughs> or, or religious? I'm like, no. What do you? What do you have any weapons? Like, no, Jesus. <laughs> and, and finally, I was like, you know, they had all this stuff written down already on their clipboard. They know these answers. And I finally said, well, guys, what, what, what exactly is going on here? You know, is this, have I done something illegal? And they're like, well, we got uh, some reports recently of, uh, from your YouTube channel. People were saying there's uh, some anti-American sentiment. I was like, oh, we're still doing McCarthyism. That's, that's still a thing. And that was, that, was the, yeah, that was the term they used, anti-American sentiment. And Are I you spoke serious? To, yeah, which, you know, I'd, I'd heard of stuff. Did they show you, like identification i uh, yeah they they had their cards and then they gave me their phone number which i still have in a drawer somewhere but i i spoke to you might know legal eagle another youtube channel um, yes i do yeah <laughs> yeah so i i was at a youtube uh, event and and he he had asked me about it because he saw the the twitter thread and so we talked about it a little bit he's like eh, they sound like cowboys to me they sound like they were kind of just doing their own thing uh out of the like the fort worth office and I thought, yeah, maybe that's the case. But I, any, anyway, I submitted a, a FOIA request. Many, many months later, I got some redacted pages. Um, and it indeed did have a, a transcript of them uh, coming, to, coming to visit. And they, you know, um, I had requested the small track FOIA request because you can retract or you can request like 50 pages is the small one. And then up to, I don't know, a couple hundred pages is the large one. And it just takes longer depending on how many pages you request. And... I requested everything because they, they said they have about 760 pages on me, um, which I was very surprised at. And they said that would take about 60 months. I was like, man, that's five years. So they what said, well, the you can. Fuck. Yeah. So I was, I was like, there's no way like Ken Klippenstein is waiting five years for things like the stuff he goes and, and, and FOIA requests. But I was like, fine, just give me the small, uh, the small track, the 50 pages, whatever, and waited four months. And I have in my hands now like 
six pages, and most of it is um, explanations of why they redacted stuff. With they're citing legal Sick. codes like Section five five two five five two A, all that garbage. Anyway, that was my experience. So my question is. How badly did I play that? Like, what is the proper response when someone shows up on your doorstep and demands to ask questions of you? <laughs> Don't open the door. Say, where's your warrant? <laughs> Tell them to fuck off. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. I mean, the truth is that, like, it's it doesn't matter who you are uh, unless you're a complete fucking bozo. And, and I'm not saying you're – I'm not calling yeah, you yeah, a bozo. Yeah. I just want to be clear. <laughs> uh, interacting, you are a bozo. <laughs> interacting with law enforcement is, you know, is a kind of stressful experience. And I think actually what happens a lot of the time is that people, they are stressed out by it. And they also default to this thing that's deeply like enmeshed, like in our brains of like, I, I didn't do anything wrong. Like I can talk yeah, to these yeah. guys, you know what I mean? And the truth mm -hmm. is like, you should never fucking talk to the cops, like under any circumstances, um, because they just need a, you know, anything can be used against you that means you know a statement out of context can be used against you but you know they can come up to your house if they want to and knock on the door and say hey you want to come outside and you know uh, answer a few questions and i think a lot of people unfortunately would be like yeah i didn't what the fuck do these guys want yeah. um you know so it is hard but like when they when the uh trainers for like the know your rights training you know do do stuff for uh undocumented people you know, one of the things they say is like, you keep your door closed, you don't let them in the house, mm -hmm. uh, you ask them to show you a warrant, blah, blah, blah. And that's really should be in that kind of situation should be your default It's like, you don't want to interact with these guys, you don't know why they're there. Obviously, they were there in bad faith. I mean, it's crazy, right? And the fact that yeah. he, or whoever said it to you, I mean, that's, that's like ridiculous. They, they yeah. he was invest, they're investigating what they say? Did they literally say un-American? Anti-American? Anti-American sentiment, yeah. Yeah, what and the I... fuck is that about? I can do whatever the <laughs> fuck I want. I could have my nuts out, respectfully, and <laughs> hate America all I want. That's not any of their fucking business, buddy, yeah. you know? Jesus yeah. and Christ. The, at, the, at the end, well, I'd said, like, okay, is there is there something, like, what what is it that, that you're investigating here? And they said, well we're the part of the joint terrorism task force and so we what we do is we need to let you know that if anyone were to watch your youtube videos and commit an act of terrorism and cite your videos we could have you charged with a crime and i'm like yeah eh, seriously yeah eh. yeah that was my eh. thing because like ben, ben shapiro is still doing his thing out there and you know plenty <laughs> yeah, of shooters but... have cited his stuff so but i was like yes right. sir thank you sir <laughs> have a great day and that was that <laughs> yeah so they're just kind of intimidating you classic they love that shit, man. It was one of those things where it's like, you know, I know this stuff happens and like people go to protest and then the cops show up at their doors later or stuff like that. But like I'm I make YouTube videos in my pajamas. I barely ever leave the house and these guys like show up on my doorstep and, and try to strong arm me and stuff like that. It's, it's it's weird. It's it's not something you ever expect will happen to you. And I guess that's a bad perspective to have because you need to be prepared if it does happen to you. So Good to know. You don't have to talk to these people. So should you just, your default is, uh, can I see a warrant? I wouldn't, uh, yeah, I mean, I would want to, I would never open the door for people, I, uh, you mm. know, telling me that they're the cops without, you know, seeing some kind of identification first and then being like, what do you want? Why are you here? Talk them through the yeah. door. I don't really care that it irritates them because the fact, now, now here, truthfully, truthfully, and I should say some, I should say, you know, add one additional 
context to this is that you know I'm a I'm a white dude, uh, so right. my and I'm also a fucking attorney, so I feel a little bit more comfortable telling cops to go fuck themselves. Um, so that <laughs> is that's definitely part of the context here. I understand that you know for some people their interactions with the police are extreme are way more stressful than my interactions mm. with the police so people you know but oftentimes people kind of know that context because sometimes they have more exposure to the police they live in places right. that are more heavily policed xyz so it's like but i'm just saying generally you don't want to get yourself into a situation when you're where you're talking with them you know what i mean it's like you can talk to my lawyer oh i'd like to have my lawyer present i want to talk to you with my lawyer present what the hell no thanks man and then they're saying all this shit and trying to get in your head and whatever fuck them bozo patrol <laughs> No kidding. But so then they'll just basically they'll fuck off after that point. If you say you're not going to answer questions without a lawyer, that's generally your experience is they'll just kind of leave or I think give with you this a vague kind threat. Of thing, yeah, vague threat for sure. The, the only thing you got to be worried about is right. Like you also have to know your situation where it's like, sure. Oh, are these guys going to say that they uh, heard somebody yelling inside my house and they break the yeah. door, you know, because, the, yeah. you know, they're shady. There's just the fact that they're there. It's already shady. Right. So it's just like, you don't you don't know what they're gonna do like you have to you have to uh be careful you have to protect yourself too but you know it could have been way worse and it's not like you said oh man yeah like this is so crazy i was just doing a line <laughs> of drugs you know yeah like, i don't know <laughs> you'd be surprised i mean look you'd be surprised what people say <laughs> to <Yeah>. cops <laughs> I can believe it. Well, there you go. You heard it here first. Don't talk to cops, and they are sneaky, please, and they will, they'll try to incriminate please you. Please do not talk to them. Where's my lawyer? If it looks like a thumb, talks like a thumb, don't talk to the thumb. It's a thumb. It's a fucking thumb. Uh, okay, the phenomenal, phenomenal discussion through which we are starting off this uh, this episode, and I'm going to switch it over to a more a general topic, uh, a very heavy topic, and I believe we have just the right person here to talk about it. Prisons. I mean, nobody wants to be in one, but knows a guy or two. Uh, they would love to lock up. Uh, the discussion on the ethics of incarceration is as old as time, from the good old, bad old days of chopping off arms, plucking out eyes to Scandinavian hotel jails. Punishment versus rehabilitation. And all that philosophy is fine and dandy, and we can talk about that if you wish, but please, as an expert on the matter and someone who's seen countless cases go through your fingers, do you think prisons, for the lack of a better word, even, like, fucking work? <laughs> uh, yeah, end of episode. Um, no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, also, expert... I would put an asterisk next to that. Uh, hopefully today's discussion, what we can do is it'll be like um, a guy, it'll be like prison abolition or abolition for dummies. You know what I mean? It'll be like mm. the dumbest guy, the bottom guy from the law school explains to you <laughs> what's happening. Um, Again with and, the fucking modesty. No, do not accept no, modesty no, no, in this no, podcast. No. Shut the... Okay. okay, so it's not, it's not, please. Okay, so the thing, I guess... The initial thing is with this question is it's kind of like a trick question because the answer to it depends on sort of what you think the purpose of prisons is. I mean, I can tell you that the popular understanding of what a, a prison is for in the popular imagination is, you know, and this is somebody who has no class analysis and kind of looks at the world like it ex everything exists in a vacuum. And it's basically like if you did something you're not supposed to do, then you should be punished for that. For those people... 
the issue is that, well, we don't spend enough. You know what I mean? Like the problem is that we don't have enough prisons or we don't have enough resources going to cops. And that's the reason why crime is bad, which is obviously very, very silly because it's an extremely, extremely shallow analysis of everything that's going on. It totally ignores poverty and the impacts of poverty, the impacts of of capitalism and and uh, what you know hoarding of resources and wealth, but I would say unfortunately, it's how a lot of people in the United States kind of view it. It's like, well, the problem is that they need to be you know tinkered with a little bit. We need we need better funding. We need better programs or whatever. And so that's kind of the first part of it. And then I think for people with a little bit more of a nuanced analysis, like a liberal you know MSNBC person or some of these people who I'm not going to name who have recently been on Twitter saying really, really stupid shit, they might recognize that like, oh, prisons are really bad. People are dying. You know, 13 people have died in Rikers just this year. 16 people in Rikers died last year. It's a, it's hell on earth. It's, it's horrible. And what's actually really crazy is Rikers is not even one of the worst jails in the United States. There are, there are honestly worse jails in, in Chicago. And it's also a pretrial detention center, which means that this shouldn't, and I don't think this should matter, but... The vast majority of people there, eight, I think 84% of the people there, are being held pre-trial, yeah. right? So they're not even fucking convicted of a crime. Head. So a, a person has been dying every month at Rikers, and they're not even convicted of a crime. Like, it's, it's a fucking nightmare. But basically, that framework says, oh, we need to, like, make prisons more humane, even though there's, there's really – that isn't really a thing that exists – and, you know, we need to give people more programming, reentry options, drug treatment, blah, blah, blah. Even though the truth of those systems is they have all these strings attached that make them kind of impossible for people to, to have success. And then finally, there's the reality pilled based uh, and class analysis pilled people <laughs> who know that prisons are doing exactly what they're meant to do, uh, which is to criminalize populations entirely along lines of race and class and feed a prison industrial complex that also serves to gobble up all of the detritus. And by that, I mean, unfortunately, human beings uh, who are viewed as societal detritus, whose existence in their state of destitution is a direct result of capitalism. So to answer your question, sorry for ranting, prisons are doing what they're meant to do, but they're not making any of us safer or society better, and they're making everything worse. I'm speechless. Uh, <laughs> could not agree more uh, personally, which kind of leads us in the in the direction of expanding uh, on your answer, uh, which is like, why does it happen to be the case that the working class and people of color, especially when it comes to the U.S., get punished with severity so insanely disproportionate to that of uh, for example, the super wealthy. And uh, as cliche as it is, but, uh, you know, steal a thousand dollars and you're a criminal, steal a billion dollars and you're uh, an entrepreneur. It's complicated, right? Like, I mean, I think the boiled down answer is that the system is steeped in white supremacy uh, and is, you know, and is inherently racist, but also that it's directly tied to the interest of sort of the powerful and the rich or whatever you want to say, global capital, whatever. Um, so there are all these interests in maintaining the system that keeps the working class impoverished and down. And I think that's a really big part of it. But when we talk about, you know, people of color and people from other marginalized communities, they're disproportionately targeted by police. Some of this is because the history of the prison system in the United States 
is a direct link between you know, the one we have today and the institution of, of slavery. And the foundation for prisons in the U.S. is slavery. And there's a great book about this uh, called Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis, where she goes into this. It's, I think it's, I mean, it's my favorite book by her. And after the Civil War, when slavery was abolished, uh, in the South especially, but everywhere in the United States, laws were passed to criminalize being black. Like, literally, they were called black codes. And some of these things were like criminalizing of vagrancy, which could include actions like not going to work or hanging out on a sidewalk. You know, it's called loafing, they would call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so. It was, Damn, I'm the biggest criminal then. Yeah, you're. The <laughs> I know, we all, we've all, we're all guilty of it. And so it was really, really easy for recently freed uh, slaves and later on, you know, their, their children to get sucked into this system that some people, like historians and writers on this, have said it was worse than slavery because prisoners were free labor that wasn't paid for by slave owners, which means we're not saying, obviously slavery was horrific, awful, terrible, but a plantation owner you know, had an investment in the people that he owned as property. So the, the system that developed after the end of the Civil War, they didn't care at all what happened to prisoners, the convict leasing system. So it was brutal. A lot of people, tons of people died or they lived in conditions that it's hard to even, you know, really imagine. You read about them and what people went through uh, and what, and then things they died over, like uh, chains going against their legs and getting infected and all these disgusting, horrible things. But the system at that point was very racialized. It was in the bones of this system. Even the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery, allowed slavery to continue, uh, which was that, you know, if you're a criminal, you can be a slave. So, so this linked criminality to color. Uh, Frederick Douglass said that there was a tendency to impute crime to color. And that obviously still holds true today, right? It wasn't long ago that in New York City, the city was being sued for stop and frisk policies that impacted hundreds of thousands of, of black and brown people and led to their harassment, detainment, arrest. And so long answer, really long answer to say the system is racist, but okay, we knew that. We have the facts and figures about all this so you can you can see how it's racist. My whole thing, and I think for a lot of abolitionists, you know, at a certain point, after a certain number of outcomes, the continuing and consistent outcome is obviously the purpose of this system. You can't say, well, we are not sure anymore. We're not sure yet if uh, if it's working or not. Like we know that it's not working, and we see what the outcomes are, and it's you know death and destruction and creating cycles of poverty um, in sort of the most vulnerable communities in the country. Now that's especially true for the United States because we know statistically that what was it twenty five percent of the world's entire prison population yes. is centered in the U.S. And yes. the reason why that the conversation like uh, should revolve around the U.S. when we're talking about law in particular is because U.S. is one of the the, the rare states on the global level, which openly states about itself as a country that has it figured out, has criminality figured out, has, uh, you know, a country where, you know, you are actually free to pursue your goals in life, et cetera, et cetera, and you are going to be, uh, you know, safe from all the criminals and bad guys out there, et cetera, et cetera. So the U.S. is supposed to be the pinnacle representation of what, let's call it, I don't know, capitalist law is supposed to look like. Yet in the state, the wealthiest state on planet Earth and the state with the largest number of people in prison than anywhere else in proportion uh, being as as 
inefficient at combating what it praises to be the king at combating at, uh, kind of shows how the entire thing, the entirety of the approach doesn't fucking work. Because, you know, people like to point at, you know, oh, look at the Central African Republic, or look at the Central European country, or look at the Central Asian country. Their laws, like uh, the the legislature there, for example, is extremely corrupt. And that is why, you know, stuff is not uh, getting properly done because, you know, they're not following the law the way, you know, all these uh, white Western uh, uh, civilized uh, states are. But then we look at the U.S., which is, you know, the definition of a Western proud democracy, etc., etc. And there's motherfuckers dying in prison that aren't yet even accused of a, of a crime. It's a, it's a country, again, sorry for repeating myself, but has the largest fucking prison population on planet Earth. So, so the argument that, you know, it's uh, bad implementation and not a systemic issue goes out the fucking window when it's also not working at the place where, based on all, like, logic, it should be working the best at, you know? Yeah, I think that's correct. <laughs> yeah, everything that guy said, that's right. Um, <laughs> but it's also beyond, I mean, obviously it's racist, and I don't want to separate these two things out because I, I think they are integrally related to each other. But it's, it's, it's also useful for the goals of capitalism in that it can do all of these nice things uh, for rich and powerful people, which is, and the number one of those kind of being is making invisible the problems of capitalism, which is, and it's a sad reality, but it's a lot of people don't want to see houseless people or people struggling with Mm -hmm. addiction or Mm -hmm. mentally ill people. And in fact, this is, this also deeply impacts our politics in the United States. And I think it impacts politics in other places. People go, oh, this is a bad part of town now or whatever. And Mm -hmm. I mean, like you see it constantly Mm -hmm. in sort of, popularized propaganda uh, talking about these things and not actually talking about like, well, why are these people on the street in the first place? How'd they get here? What's going on? How did we fail them as a society? It's like, well, I don't want to, you know, there's homeless people. I don't like them. You know, it's, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't have any analysis on that. It's breaking down the real estate value of the fucking neighborhood. Yeah, they, no, really, though, no, no, truly. Yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> you know, they basically, it's that uh, a lot of people who have, influence and power and wealth and and you know maybe not even necessarily like the true capitalists the people who uh, are really controlling our society um but just very you know wealthy people they don't want to see the direct outcome of this system which doesn't value human beings and will happily slash you know social welfare spending to give more money to rich people or invest in war and imperialism and police forces that hold up you know this whole system and the system itself has to make these people invisible because if they aren't made invisible then people like like you or me or your listeners they might want to change social policies and the dynamics that lead to innumerable people starving living on the streets struggling with mental illness everything like that because those changes are going to cost rich and powerful people money Mm -hmm. and in an ideal world an end to a system that has given them that power that's really you know they're a bunch of crooks I mean, it, is, it sounds almost simplistic, but like, okay, if everybody gets to even, okay, let's imagine, okay, you're doing relatively well, but every fucking day on the street, you see immeasurable fucking poverty, disease, fucked up shit happening, uh, robberies, whatever the fuck you want to call it. After you end up seeing that for 
quite a while. What does that do to your political beliefs, etc., etc.? It, come on, children, it radicalizes you. So if you start getting radicalized, you can go in two directions. Every listener of ours knows this. You know, you can go right or you can go left. You can be a reactionary. You can find, like, actual material grounds on systemic grounds which have caused uh, said things. So if we don't want people to get radicalized, especially in this one direction, the other one, you know, we like those guys. But if we don't want them to get radicalized and see how the, the system is set up, and again, this is where the, it sounds super simplistic, but apparently it's how it happens. If you don't want them to keep seeing poverty, just pick up all those fucking poor people and put them between four walls. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, exactly, that's exactly it. I mean, and it's really messed up, but that's exactly what it is. And I mean, in some places, they're just like, out, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind. In, in a, lo yeah. a lot of encampments where people are living and very obviously struggling, the reaction by a lot of uh, city councils has been like, all right, we got to bulldoze these places. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like not, it's not dealing with it at all. It's just like, all right, let's, uh, let's make these people's lives a little bit more chaotic and miserable. Also, hopefully I don't do, I hope, I hope these people who we now take the only possessions that they own on this planet and the only, you know, barely human sense of community they have, uh, let's take that away from them and then hope that they don't, you know, have a shit fit at, at Rite Aid or whatever, you know, like yeah. all of these things are connected, right? Like no, no, none of these things happen inside of a vacuum. And the problem is that the way we talk about them, and that's the kind of, that's, that's also something that for the people listening, I really want them to think about is that these are, it's difficult, but these are things that don't exist in a vacuum and abolition truly more than anything else requires you to you know, be thoughtful about that and not and not act like a fucking child, like, to be honest, and not just be like, well, there's crime and we need to stop it. It's like, yeah, all right, we know. We know there's crime. We know. We're trying to stop it, you fucking bozo. Like, that's that's the whole thing because it, it turns back on itself. Sometimes you hear, I mean, you hear so many politicians talk about things like this, like Obama talking about abolish the police or fucking Biden being like, no, we have to fund the police, even though they made, you know, they get funded over a hundred billion dollars a year in the United States. And they saw less than, I think, I think less than 1% overall reduction in police budgets after, yeah. after the George <laughs> Floyd uh, protests. Yeah. So functionally nothing changed at all in terms of police funding. And these people are acting like they were destroying all of the police departments, taking all their funding away. And again, and again, remember, this is like to take that money and to actually put it into communities as opposed to yeah. like, you know, the guys who come into the community have no connection to it and criminalize it. I think part of the problem is that we are almost incapable of talking about systemic issues here in the States because everything has become so hyper-individualized. That's the only way we're able to yes. conceptualize stuff is personal responsibility. You know, if someone goes to jail, they made bad decisions. And you know what? Yeah, they maybe they do deserve to, to work for free putting out fires or manufacturing hand sanitizer for the rest of us because they made bad decisions. And that's something we have to come to grips with and really figure out how we can kind of broach that subject and talk about systemic issues without those people just plugging their ears and saying, nope, they made bad decisions. They're bad people. Yes. And J JT, let me follow up on that beautiful point with a nugget of knowledge that just I thought of that's truly beautiful, um, <laughs> which is that 
you know, part yeah. of the the history of the creation of the modern prison, some of it stems from the change that happened during the French Revolution when we started to focus on the individual rights uh, mm. and, and the individual as the former, you know, the, the, the formal uh, sort of bearer of, uh, you know, rights and liberties, liberté, <laughs> égalité, fraternité. I don't know. I don't speak French. I love uh, you, Americans. Yeah, yeah. But, you're good. You're good. But, but uh, you know, that, that change to the individualism and then beyond that, kind of like the, the age of reason when, you know, literally labor became divorced from its output and then and, and there was that alienation. And, and I think that what's so interesting to me is, you know, historically that coincided with people being punished by spending time in a prison where there were time calculations done like labors, mm. which I think is like connected to the labor theory of value. I think, I think those things actually are intricately connected. All these things, they seem disconnected, but they're all, they're all so connected to one another. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm talking out of my ass. Whatever. What do you want from me? <laughs> no, no, very good. No, dude, very good points. I don't know what, what you're expecting of yourself. Like, you make absolutely perfect sense. It's very good. But, like, that leads us to, like, because oh, you just talked about uh, the French Revolution. You talked about the historic remnants of uh, U.S. Uh, slavery. We, talk, we touched on uh, free labor in prisons in general. But, like, you know, people talk shit and, and rightfully of how, you know, certain states of our quote-unquote ideological current engaged in forced labor, like, you know, prisons, camps, call it whatever you want. Uh, but funny enough, uh, a place like, I don't know, the Soviet Union had the last gulag closed back in the 60s, and yet the U.S., again, as we said 7,000 times because it is important, the wealthiest country to have ever existed, has prison slave labor to this point. And you addressed this uh, ex like ex extensively? Extensively, Spasiba. <laughs> uh, extensively. Uh, so are these just the remnants of like an old system, all of the systems that you mentioned previously, or is it backed up by an industry of unimaginable size? I mean, I know how I personally, how freaky I personally found it when I heard that, uh, you know, you psychos have private prisons. Uh, uh, but jokes aside, as, as a professional in the legal field in general, these are a few questions I know. I apologize. What <laughs> okay. is your take? Yeah. So it's not remnants. It, it is it is the system. Sorry, my dog is barking. Um, the thing about private prisons, which you mentioned, I just like to remind people that actually less than 10% of incarcerated people are in private prisons. So, you know, the, while the idea of private prisons can definitely captures the popular imagination, I just want to reiterate the idea that the the problem is prisons, and it's not even the public or private distinction. Although, yeah, it is obviously like the second you hear it, like a private prison, you're like, "What the hell is this? How there's a profit motive behind this? This is insane." I think that between the two important institutions that we're talking about here are prisons and the police. And like I said, the police get over a hundred billion dollars of funding a year. You know, in New York, the NYPD budget is. I don't know exactly what it is. It's definitely clear of $6 billion. It depends how you're counting. Around four to five times the, the amount that my whole country has on a yearly basis. It's a, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a horrifying amount of money um, that they spend on it. And like I said, you know, big, powerful people like Barack Obama will treat abolitionists and activists uh, you know, who are on the ground 
they're doing they're doing work and i'm not considering myself in this just so we're clear like i'm a public defender but i'm not i don't mean these people are doing a lot more than me um you know like out on the streets bleeding working dying organizing their communities but they're getting treated like they're naive when as we've said the outcome of the system is the fucking point of it thinking it works is naive motherfucker like, right exactly yep. yes yes yep. totally and i think like California built more prisons in the 80s and 90s than it did in the prior 100 years before that. And you know that that was directly tied to Reaganism and the war on drugs. And California, which is we talk about as a very progressive place and whatever, has some of the largest prisons on earth. And so I think with the development of prisons over the last, I don't know, 7,500 years, it, it's, it's clear that it's just become an issue on steroids where the history was already there, the foundation, the racist foundation was already there, but now it's fully built out and this institutional force that just prisons alone, you know, cost over a hundred billion dollars a year. I think I think the I think the average is like five hundred million per state that's spent on prisons, but wow. the reality is it's to, to put one person in prison in New York, it costs like se- north of $70,000 a year for a single person. So you think about all of that money getting poured into this and you're like, well, man, wouldn't it be nice to, uh, I don't know, give that to that community as opposed to whatever the fuck, you know, this thing is. And I think that next to it and, a, and sort of handshake, it's handshake is policing in the United States we need to kind of resist the urge to say it's time to reform we need we need we really need you know better technology we need xyz because the reality is that like as somebody like foucault will tell you is that the the reform is becomes the reification of the system it becomes a way to uh keep it in place and not actually change anything it it, i think he described it as like it's the program like reform is mm. the program in, in Discipline and Punish, which is a, a cute book that he wrote. I think it also just blows my mind knowing the history of the development of prisons, how much it's built into our lives, certainly in the United States, but I think in a lot of other places too. Famous philosophers like Jeremy Bentham, like, like literally designed the Panopticon, you know? Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's a, a beautiful thing that is now representative of our modern lives where we're all like surveilling each other constantly. There was actually a prison that was designed after the Panopticon in the United States in 18 something, 1826, something like that in Pittsburgh. That was the first fully functional Panopticon prison in the United States. And it's obviously only gotten worse from that point where people were kept in total isolation from each other and i think that that's still represented today in supermax prisons where people Mm. spend 23 hours a day inside of a cell the size of um you know like a parking spot so i don't think like remnants i think they're it's alive it's here it's it's flourishing and any attempts to push back against this system is met with extreme reaction and, and anger um, because you're seen as a radical if, you, if you're 
if you're trying to push back against it. Or even worse, naive, as you said. Which <laughs> yeah, is worse. Is it worse to be naive than a radical? I don't know. <laughs> One thing I've heard that um, is pretty damning of the system, if and you can tell me if this is accurate, is that modern day you know police squads are are more or less descendants of runaway slave patrols and you know if that's the case then that it's a pretty clear through line of white supremacy from very early in this country's history to modern policing and incarceration yes yeah that is that is true and that is, that is their history and what's so messed up about uh the police aspect in this is that they're also tied to that idea of we can't do reform. This isn't a mm. thing that can be reformed. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Uh, and the history of that is super fascinating. Uh, Maryam Kaba has this new book she just wrote called No More Police. Great book. Highly recommend. And one of the things she outlines is kind of like the history of these reform efforts that, that go over, you know, over a century. There is a, this thing called the Lexow Commission in 1894 where they were talking about uh, police corruption, extortion, harassment, violence, all these things. And they had 700 witnesses, and they literally nothing changed at that wow. point. And then a few decades later, in New York, the, the Wickersham Commission, which was about prohibition, it was in 1929. And it was really amazing because they recommended, and this is a, this is a quote, better leadership and management, more effective training, better policies and procedures, more oversight, new technology. It sounds like something that was that's like written about yeah. a bad police department from this year. You know, mm -hmm. they're just like, okay, we're yeah. we're really thinking about it. You know, we're gonna we're gonna do a reflection, and we're all gonna uh, take a retreat. It, it sounds like it sounds like a business university student that didn't study for a fucking uh, exam on how to improve the HR department, and they wrote down like. 10 buzzwords yeah. <laughs> and the, the fucking police departments are doing that the same thing but as you said like 50 years later it's right. again the same fucking 10 bullet points just being put we will be better cops and <laughs> also the uniforms should be cleaner and maybe we shouldn't arrest the wrong people as much it fucking uh, it's, it's it, again just, I think this is the, the main 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 point out of out of this episode that can be that can be taken is that it's it's not uh, messed up it is working how it is supposed to be working this is it this is the prison system this is uh, capitalist criminality etc etc it's it's as lubed up and as fucking ready to you know go through every single one of you if you ever oppose it that that using the the the, the argument that on oh, no, you know we, we get to reform it if we get to reform it a bit if we get to move some funds around if we get to you know uh paint it uh, in, a, in fucking pride uh, colors and shit. If we have more uh, black prison guards and uh, female prison CEOs, it's, it's, we're going to fix this fucking thing up. It's, 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 the whole point is that this is how it's supposed to run. That is where systematic change comes in from the roots upwards. You know, the tree needs to be fucking... Um, Watered. <laughs> Sometimes, well, yeah, massively, <laughs> massively with police tears. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The one thing I'll add to that is that a lot of the time, uh, reform efforts are kind of like you know they're co-opted as they often are, like in di in different spaces. But especially with abolition, whether it's like abolish the police, abolish prisons, whatever, the efforts are are co-opted to take steam out of the movements 
um, and to maintain these systems. So like a really, really good example of that uh, is after uh, Khalif Browder's death, he was um, incarcerated at Rikers pre-trial for three years. He was held in solitary confinement for 18 months and he basically lost his mind. I mean, he, he, he took it. Yeah. He took his own life, unfortunately. And after that, they passed a law. And one of the things that that law did that, uh, the beautiful Goomba, uh, Andrew Cuomo signed, um, (laughs) it, it gave $12 million in funding to, a, a, a child uh, detention center, a, basically Jesus a child Christ. jail, named after Harriet Tubman, by the way. <laughs> Just so you know. Yeah, the child the child jail, it's the Harriet Tubman child jail. So it's a really, really glaring example. <laughs> is of there an thing. MLK jail? Is there an MLK jail? I don't know. There probably uh, would be, is. Yeah, um, probably is. But, you know, that's that's the thing. That, that's what happens. The, the efforts are co-opted or money just ends up getting funded back into these institutions. And I mean, it's, it's what Joe Biden is like doing right now with, with police funding, right? Where it's like, we're going to pass these laws and guess what? Guess who's getting money? The fucking police departments that we want to defund, you know, it's like the exact opposite. And, And that happens constantly. They're like, oh, we need better training actually is the problem. It's like, no, the problem is that these institutions are spending billions of dollars that we should be giving to communities who know better about how to use that money and how to keep their communities safe. That's, that's the reality. And I also heard, uh, also heard uh, that since you mentioned communities that very often in the U S in particular uh, communities are policed by cops that aren't even from those communities. Yeah, of course. Like to an outsider that like, yes, our legal system here is super fucked up as well. Uh, Don't get me wrong, but, but it just sounds fucking bad shit, man. Why why would you do Okay. But yes, so it's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very true. I mean, I think a third of the NYPD, I just want to be clear. I, I think a third of the NYPD lives on Long Island actually, but, but I do want to be clear that like, it shouldn't, it didn't really matter where they're from. Right. Like in terms of uh, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's glaring and messed up, but I just want the cops to go away. You know, I don't yeah. want, <laughs> I don't want to be like, Oh, we need more cops from the Bronx to be in the Bronx. No, that's like that community policing <laughs> yeah. bullshit that like, guess what? People still get arrested. People still get killed. We don't, we don't want that shit. We want them out. We, you know, give me a community center, give me after school activities, give me school lunches, give things to these communities. Don't fucking criminalize them, which is all this, that, you know, it's all that that stuff does is, is criminalize them. Absolutely. So Alex, defense attorney or prosecutor, yeah. <laughs> uh, what in your opinion is harder and uh, why oh. is it being a defense attorney? I mean, the simple, you know, fuck prosecutors. They have the whole apparatus of the state. Like, how could you, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it doesn't even matter if you're a private bar defense attorney who has maybe like a little bit more funding behind you or has access to more stuff. Like, obviously that's helpful in a case. But they have the entire apparatus of the state behind them. And they also have, you know, the benefit of years and years of popularized propaganda, like Law & Order being maybe the best yeah. example that are just like, you know, 
really buried in in people's minds all all like law related uh, shows or films not all of them but 99% of them that i watched that came out of uh, out of the west the, the the defense attorney is always like the bad guy yeah he, he yeah. really doesn't <laughs> want this pedophile to go to prison yeah mm, you know, know? the guys on law and order they're like all right like you know what i mean like they're not all like yeah sure there's some guys who are like a little bit sleazy but like so over the top and like yeah. i think also, my my whole thing is people people like asking me questions like, well, would you rather have a good prosecutor or like a shittier prosecutor? And it's just kind of like, hey, how much poop do you want to eat? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't want a yeah. fucking prosecutor. Um, and I think that, yeah, in like in in our culture, there's a general positive reception of prosecutors. Uh, and even though there's been like some pushback, uh, it's still like very culturally dominant. And my... Just to like demystify for some people, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what your listeners kind of like think about this type of stuff, but like a guy like- whatever we tell them. They think, all right, you're going to do what we tell you, all right? You pieces of shit. No, okay. So (laughs) it's incredible to me that guys like Preet Bharara, who was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York- are like seen as kind of heroes in popular culture to, I mean, to a lot of people, right? Because he's like the, excuse me, Mr. Trump, you know, kind of dude. And he like will be on MSNBC. But the reality is that like he oversaw some of the largest RICO cases ever in, in New York where he was in, you know, they were policing the poorest neighborhoods, putting away teenagers, like 120, they had 120 indictments a couple of years ago on one of these. And more than half of them, they just you know they're doing rico charges which is the racketeer influenced and corrupt organizations act or whatever it's called i don't know um and it was like they were posting on facebook or they were like friends with people who might have been in gangs and and they they pursued all these people i mean they like fucked up this entire community and you know people are like we love that guy he he hates president trump like he's gonna stop him he said cheeto man bad yeah no it's really is kind of like that and i think people also underestimate the power of prosecutorial discretion which is a huge part of the criminal system in the united states is the fact what is that for us idiots what is that yeah yeah prosecutorial discretion is basically the ability of prosecutors to determine like what kind of case they're going to bring what kind of case they're going to pursue what kind of charges they're going to pursue uh the recommendations they're going to make to the judge it's you know it's it's the it's the it's the power of being a prosecutor and the reality is that a lot of the decisions made by an office are made higher up the chain, you know, like where a line prosecutor who's just like in a courtroom every day has a little bit less flexibility in some of the choices that they make because they're doing what their supervisor tells them they have to do. But the reality is that like, it's like Nuremberg or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, okay, so my you know, this elderly client who is clearly has like a drug addiction issue and has lived on the street most of their lives needs to go to prison for drug addiction. Like, what the fuck are we talking about? And that's that's the reality. It's the it's this ability to choose, pick and choose, you know, what crimes are worthy. And getting back to that idea mm-hmm. of like, hey, why aren't more CEOs in jail? You know what I mean? It's like, well, they're not in jail because they're the people with power and prosecutors can decide who goes to jail. So... That's, you know, that's just how it is.
And even even like I watched one of your, uh, I mean, I watched every single one of them, but one of your TikToks that now like speaks to me when it comes to exactly what what you just said. Uh, let's say, okay, there's a case currently being run against someone and they want to post bail because, you know, they don't want to fucking die in detention or they they uh, want to organize better by being out, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when you're setting up such a case, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you want to get as much information, be it from the community or be it uh, from their own personal history, et cetera, et cetera, that is going to show the judge that uh, the flight risk is relatively low for this particular person. So, uh, uh, if somebody is, for example, uh, houseless and happens to be living on the street for a while, it's going to be 7,000 times more difficult to bring up a case for bail than, uh, you know, a dude who probably had fucking lunch with that same judge like three months ago, but just, you know, made the Goldman Sachs failing look like a fucking uh, uh, joke. Obviously, he's going to get bail, even though he has the funds to, to escape in like three seconds to an island and never be seen again but the the poor fucking grandma uh, on, on the street uh, that happens to have to do stuff to just you know continue living without blowing her brains out uh is never <laughs> going Christ. to get said bail <laughs> yeah so it's 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 tell me if i'm wrong like uh, even such such a like beginning of a case type of situation as bail is already uh T giving us uh, volumes of, of information on just how uh, the system is set up against people who live in poverty. Yeah, bail bail is bail is set up to keep poor people incarcerated. Bail is created to coerce people into making plea deals that they otherwise might not. You know, and it's kind of insulting that we say when somebody. Uh, plea, uh, you know, t takes a guilty plea to something that they did so, you know, intelligently, knowingly, and voluntarily. How can you say somebody's doing something voluntarily when they're yeah. in a place where people are dying every single month and the conditions are like, you know, being in a war zone or something? How, how can you say that that person made a voluntary decision to save their own life and get out of there, you know? And that's that aspect of coercion is a, is a huge part of bail. Uh, you know, bullying people into taking plea deals. You know, a big part at play in all of this is the propaganda of the media. I mean, I'm thinking of like the New York Post right now, but it's it, the, the media generally does it. The mainstream media does it when they talk about things like bail reform, which is trying to help, you know, keep people out of jail and has been very successful because a lot of people come to their fucking court dates. But you see a story that's like, you know, man, you know, does whatever bad thing. Uh, you also don't see, you know, you see one story, the guy punches the other guy, uh, but he was out on bail, and they have a picture of the guy, and they also have, like, the name of the judge. This is what the New York Post likes to do. You don't have the hundred stories of man gets out of Rikers, you know, takes his daughter to uh, school, um, mm -hmm. is is useful member of his family. You know what I mean? Like, is able to support his you know his children or whatever you don't you don't get that you don't see those things because those stories aren't told they just want to tell stories about what what their kind of agenda is which is let's you know put more let's put more people in so yeah it's really fucked up and it's in it's, it's unbelievable that it's still a thing and it also shows the up it's it really shows the uphill battle that like activists and policy you know people interested in these policies have because the second you get a little win which is like we're going to change some of the bail laws you get this reaction which is 
it's horrible here you know it's everything mm. is falling apart uh the it's on fire and it, it and but real realistically crime you know hasn't changed that much blah 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 so when you're when you have to deal with stuff like this on a daily basis for which uh, I believe I can speak in JT's name and in Hakim's name. Uh, we thank you. Uh, how tempting is it to just get away from the cases that impact so intensively the lives of, uh, of, if I can call it, your clients? So how tempting is it to you know, just go corporate or is that just a movie thing? I think it's a I think it's a temptation at the beginning. I think for people who go to law school, it's a temptation in the beginning to do that uh, because it's very expensive. So it's a natural coercive pathway for people to end up doing kind of corporate work because it pays a lot of money. And you know, like we've kind of said, we live in a deeply individualistic society, right? Like I'm very critical of myself, but we generally don't really like to critique people's personal choices, even if sometimes, you know, the domino effect is like helping DuPont uh, to poison a town um, or like, you know, less dramatically, like just reinforcing structures of global capital and, and being a cog in, in sort of that machinery. So like there's a temptation, I think, but also I would be I mean, I would be fucking miserable doing that shit. And I think my friends that do it are also pretty miserable. And I don't think, you know, I don't know, try to be more human, you know, mm. if you, if you can, or it <laughs> fucking sucks. Like, I don't know that shit. It seems real soul sucking. The only thing they have is the fact that they make a lot of money. And I don't know that you can derive a lot of pleasure or happiness in your own life by, by doing that. You know, like I, I my job is very, very stressful, but I get, I do get a tremendous amount of satisfaction out of like being able to do something meaningful for another human being, you know, like that to me is like, makes it almost makes it worth it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. But what for... color is your Bugatti though? Yeah, no, <laughs> I was, I was driving a civic. It's gone now. Cause I'm back in the city, but it's, you know, it's a temptation, I think, but also lawyers like fuck lawyers, dude, fuck, like, fuck me, fuck lawyers, whatever. I, uh, <laughs> So ideally, would you would you want lawyers gone in an ideal world? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, the the Dean Spade who wrote this little kind of like pamphlet book called Mutual Aid, it's pretty good, wrote this essay about people thinking about going to law school that I think actually I would recommend if people are thinking about that. Although, please fucking don't go to law school. Um, <laughs> I think... I think the most important thing, though, is like deprofessionalizing legal work, like mm. demystifying it, making it more accessible to people and understandable and, and like just to making people understand that like non-lawyers can do a lot of legal work, you know, like the know yeah. your rights training. That's like people, you know, non-lawyers can do that stuff. And it's really helpful to communities. And I mean, like, look, the Supreme Court case that made public defenders that gave you a constitutionally protected right to counsel, that was from a guy who was incarcerated, you know, who, who like, who, who filed all that stuff, you know, huh. Gideon. I mean, like he, he did it. Like, I don't know. He, you know, he was just a guy who was, who was, uh, real pissed <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, made some of the most important case law that exists for, uh, your constitutional rights in the United States. So I think, I think kind of like deprofessionalizing it is important. And also just understanding that like, Lawyers are fucking dumb as hell. Like they don't they don't have some kind of sp fancy knowledge. They're not fucking doctors. 
they have maybe a specialized dialed in thing that they focus on. And truthfully, they learn the vast majority of like what they do on the job. You know, you don't, you don't really learn, you, 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 you kind of touch upon all these different things in law school. You don't become an expert in any of them, you know? Um, like I thought I was going to be a securities lawyer, which is so evil. I don't even want to say that, <laughs> but like, but I, you know, I had my own like kind of bend on it. Like I worked my first summer, I worked at the SEC <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to make uh, rich guys get in trouble. I was like, that'll be yeah. good. And then I realized like, <laughs> oh, wait a second. None of these guys are getting in any trouble. This is so fucked up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So whatever you know, learn, learn by doing, but no, but yeah, I don't you're want saying them. in post cap in post capitalism. Like we just take you out the back end. And sure, yeah. That would be <laughs> ideal. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, whatever, like maybe personal contracts or something like that. What I don't know, you know, like it's like, who cares? Just get rid of them. Deprofessionalize stuff. Tell them to, to get their heads out of their asses a little bit. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote this to my lawyer oh my friend who's, who's who's like no the best I mean I it's like a default who, yep. lawyer position to be like lawyers are terrible I would never trust ah, a lawyer okay. who's like I love lawyers you know <laughs> don't trust that guy. yeah I wake up every morning fucking lawyers like, yeah. yo these people are sick but some people what some people want to date lawyers like really really want to date yeah, they find it sexy I find it sexy come on that fucking big red mustache of yours fucking pointing fingers that has yeah. nothing to do with my that has nothing I mean, to do with mm. lawyering it's just the, you know you could uh, very easily be a fireman instead yeah yeah I might go I might move into that hell yeah so, dear listeners if if you went through this whole episode which I am sure you have uh and you've been convinced on like 98, 99, 100% of all of the points that uh, Alex, me, and JT outlined uh, here, obviously mostly Alex, uh, there's still something that's just fucking ringing in your head, I'm guessing, and it's always ringing in everyone's head when, we, when we're talking about prisons in particular, and that's like, what about the bad, bad guys, you know, the... Uh, <laughs> What about really bad crime, like murder, et cetera, et cetera? What the fuck do we do there? Okay, so this is like the big question, right? And I think one of the reasons it's tough to answer is just like in my experience, not here, obviously, but in my experience, like half the time someone will ask you this. It's because they just want to be like, look, we got him. This guy's an idiot, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it kind of plays into that like naive thing of, of like, Oh, these people, they don't know how the real world works. And it's like, man, I see the real world, unfortunately, very up close every day. But I, but I do think it's a fair question. And I tried to kind of say this before. The most important thing that people need to understand is that abolitionists are horizon, right? Abolitionists are principled people. They're interested in harm mitigation. That's what my job is more than anything else. I'm in some ways, you know, public defenders. It can you can sometimes feel like a cog in the machine because I'm just like part of this machinery. I might help somebody, somebody sometimes. But like, it's easy to feel like, well, I'm just part of this. But it's about harm mitigation. Like for, for public defenders, it's about like harm mitigation. Uh, and I think abolition is interested in that harm mitigation, but ultimately arriving at like a future that's good for all of us. And it's not that it's, it's not utopian because most of the people who are really talking about this stuff are doing work against these systems or they're trying to support their communities to get towards this ultimate goal, right, of eradicating the prison industrial complex, of abolishing the police, and the and these institutions which are which are deeply, deeply tied to capitalism. So we're aware of how bad it is and how fucked up it is. 
and that it's a dog fight. You know, it's David versus Goliath. But so, <laughs> and I know someone's listening to this and they're like, all right, buddy, but what the fuck are we going to do with these murderers? You know, like, that's all nice, but what are we going to do? And it's like, no, you need to, we'll get there. Hold on. Institutions like slavery and segregation, a long time ago, people thought that those were not changeable. They were, they were just like too integrated into our lives and it was impossible to imagine an alternate future. Ideology. Ideology. for a second. Yes, please. People, continue. yes. And people who, <laughs> people who did were called fanatics. The people who were like, let's do something different. So as far as like bad crime, a bad, whatever you want to call it, a big bad crime, the worst thing you could think of, you know, unfollowing me on social media, <laughs> for example, and like, you know, murder, whatever, whatever it is. What are we doing about that stuff now? You know what I mean? How many crimes do you think cops are solving? versus get committed because i can tell you that it's less than 10 percent of the major crimes okay i can i have a study i can send it to you it's on police clearance rates which also are already fucked up because they're self-reporting right so it's yeah. like it's asking an arsonist who's a firefighter what his funding should be you know um <laughs> and i've been around long enough i've been around long enough to know that you know some people aren't convinced by that they're not convinced by cops don't stop these things and rarely respond to what people would consider like a really bad crime. Um, some people aren't satisfied by that. So, okay, that's fine. I think it comes down to a, a question of weighing these things, which is we've talked about this today. We know what this system does. We know that a person every month is dying on Rikers Island, being detained pre-trial before conviction of a crime. We know cops are killing a thousand people a year that we know of, that we know of. We know people are being prosecuted and imprisoned almost entirely along lines of race and class. And that losing a loved one to prison can destabilize and destroy families and communities. And it does it every single day. And if we know that all of that is happening, are we actually interested in stopping that and creating a system that prevents that and also uses the money for prisons and police, which is somewhere in the ballpark of like $200 billion a year, to actually fund communities and prevent the root causes that lead to the vast majority of crime and, and criminality. And not to be annoying, but to be annoying because I am very annoying. <laughs> What's a crime? What is a crime? You know, like Alec uh, Karakitsanis, he's got a really good Twitter that I recommend people follow. Um, he does like police propaganda breakdowns that are pretty cool. He's written about this, uh, he wrote about this in his book. A lot of people talk about this, which is like, why is it a crime to throw dice in an alley, but not a casino? Or, you know, drug possession is a crime for my client, but like, it's fine for Chad to do, you know, blow outside of the nightclub. And the state can make shoplifting a crime, but they're not going to make wage theft a crime. And wage theft is conservatively $50 billion a year. And by some estimates, it's even, it's almost double that. So that's multiple times the value of all forms of property crime combined. We're not asking enough of our leaders or the people in power. We're just kind of accepting it as fact that, that this is how the way the world works. And I think that abolition requires us to be a little bit more imaginative and also to like fight for a future that like we would we want to live in or maybe if we're crazy enough like we want our children to live in and and so i think that's that's 
that's really what it's about. It's it's not it's not any individual thing. It's about talking about all of us collectively and how we're going to reach that future. So yeah, it's really really bad, uh but a lot of crime is interpersonal and there are a lot of other people uh who have come up with really interesting and cool systems like indigenous people, the Navajo uh peace building process that integrate, you know, community restorative justice practices like bringing together a community to deal with harm and actually getting to a root cause of harm. And instead of having a system where you are focused around punishment, you're focused around the obligation that a person owes by harming someone else because the, no mm-hmm. one gets, no one gains anything by, by mm-hmm. someone languishing in a cell, basically. And so I think it requires you to be a little bit more expansive in your outlook and unfortunately, that doesn't lend itself to a soundbite. That doesn't lend itself to a soundbite, you know? Like, that's just the reality. But I I really do believe that, like, I think we can get there. I don't know. I mean, I've, got, I've come a long way. And, like, I fuck with it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And I don't I, think we have a choice. I think we have to. We have to. Yeah. I think it's a slow process. You know, it's a slow process. It's a slow... It, it's, it, it's a process. And it's kind of that, what is the Lenin thing? Decades, In weeks. weeks, decades can happen. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I believe that. I believe that truly, but I think it's going to take people working on these things and paying attention to them and understanding. And, and that's, the, you know, that's, that's a big part of this. Because the way people talk about it, you know, when someone says something disparaging about abolitionists, they're like, these people want to cut loose. You know, they're, they're, they're just imagining this make-believe world that no one ever said would be the case. No, no one's like... All the pedophiles running yeah, around. Yeah, this like is what we need to do. Like, we need to uh, just send all these people to your neighborhood to come kill you, whatever, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it's like, no, we're talking about let's resource, let's give resources to communities. Let's figure out how we can um, give people access to the things they need, secure housing, blah, blah, blah. It's, a, it's something that's a process. Like, yeah, I do believe that we need to shut these places down. We need to shut down Rikers. We need to have places where people can go and live and have stability. Uh, they're still human beings at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Like, that's the reality. No one is defined by a single fucked up thing or even a couple fucked up things that they did. That's just not how it works. That's 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 how life works if you're a fucking baby. Alex, thank you for making this episode even more uh, incredible than what I could have uh, expected in the beginning. Uh, could you please tell all of our dear listeners uh, where they can find you, the stuff that you're up to, uh, and any like external causes that you would like to support. Uh, dear listeners, all of this will be in the description below the audio or video, depending on what platform you're listening on. Alex? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me on. It was really cool. If you want to, you could follow me on twitter tiktok and all the socials it's lol overruled which is you know it's an old one i made it a long time ago but now i can't change it because it's been <laughs> it's been too it's long awesome wow. right. it's, bad. it's awesome it's so cheesy uh and uh whenever alex writes lol i just write lol. overruled yes it's below. true i can't um, help it and we actually started a Discord where we're doing a monthly reading group mostly has been free reading stuff but our first one is actually coming up this week. I think it'll this might come out after that. But we have a monthly reading group, uh, which maybe people might be interested in. It doesn't cost any money if you're if you like 
books. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and uh, on September 30th, I don't know when you're hearing this, but on September 30th, I'm doing a 24-hour stream on Twitch uh, for for to benefit the people of Pakistan uh, who are going through a horrible situation right now. We're going to have some pretty, I think, some interesting guests, hopefully. I don't know. It's coming together. So if you want to check that out, that could be cool. And we're also going to have weird challenges. I'm probably going to have to eat a hot chip and do other <laughs> stuff that I don't really want to do. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thanks again to Alex for coming on. It's a great episode. Uh, this has been The Deep Program. I'm JT. I'm Ugopnik. Fuck 12. <laughs>